every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Shane Van Gisbergen was in a league of his own at Simmons Plains, surprise, surprise, with three wins from three races and some brilliant passing moves. Uh, He takes back the orange numbers for leading the series and has moved past both Garth Tander and Scott McLaughlin on the all-time winners list to be standalone fourth place. The Tasmania Super Sprint weekend also included a first main game podium for Brock Feeney, a first podium for Grove Racing in its current guise, thanks to David Reynolds, and some pretty wild on-track action that we'll cover off later in the pod. There's good news on the Adelaide 500 front with a very swift appointment of a chairman for the South Australian Motorsport Board. Big Pete Malinowskis has put former Motorsport Board CEO Andrew Daniels it's probably a good job he doesn't work for the Victorian government, uh, into the role. Uh, he has most recently been the CEO at the Adelaide Oval. Gen 3 testing is continuing at Simmons Plains as we speak. Yesterday, it was Shane Van Gisbergen, Garth Tander and Mark Winterbottom that drove the Camaro, while Cam Waters and James Courtney drove the Mustang. Today, it is Bryce Forward and Jack Smith of the Camaro and David Reynolds and Lee Holdsworth in the Mustang. It will be a new-look speed comparison at Albert Park this year with no Formula One car taking part. Instead, it will be Jamie Winkup in a 888 supercar, Harry Bates in a Toyota rally car, and Luke Yulden in a road-going Porsche. And speaking of rally cars, the Australian Rally Championship kicks off in Canberra this weekend where all eyes will be on Shane Van Gisbergen as he makes his ARC debut. Uh, The Greater Dandenong Council has voted in favour of taking the rezoning proposal for Sandown to the public consultation stage, so perhaps we're a step closer to seeing the end of a very famous circuit and a huge 70-car grid has been locked in for the Bathurst six-hour. If all the cars make it to race day, it will be the biggest field ever for an endurance race at Mount Panorama. Now, joining me to discuss all that and much more is a teammate who I'd happily lead across the DRS line, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you today? Andrew, you know me, I don't need DRS to overtake. I'm all about the side draft. <laughs> That was, uh, of course, one of the buzzwords from uh, a pretty entertaining weekend of racing at Simmons Plains. Uh, plenty of. Did you learn what the side draft basically was on the weekend? I had a, I had this conversation with multiple people that went, "Oh, okay, I was today years old that I learned how that actually works." Yeah, it was a funny one that it's it's a term that gets used from time to time, and I guess I never really took the time to properly understand it because when we talk about a draft, we always think of the second car getting a speed advantage. There's less drag on that yeah. car, so they pull out and overtake. And it was just that uh, 
that beautiful explanation from Mark Larkham uh, on the telecast on the weekend that really shone a light on the fact that it's effectively pulling a brake on the car in front when your your nose is pushing more air onto its rear wing when you get up to the say the quarter panel. So yeah, that was interesting and very very topical, obviously with Simmons planes. Um, it's a big part of the racing there, and there were plenty of uh, plenty of things to talk about. Yeah, there was. I think, um, yeah, like I say, a lot of people I think kind of learned that. I didn't really understand it either. So either either Larko has just made it up and he's just played everyone, which is, you know, brilliant as well, or that was definitely very informative. All right, look, let's crack into some of the major talking points that came out of Simmons Plains. It's hard to start anywhere, but Shane Van Gisberg. And, I mean, the bloke is just – he's just unbelievable at driving racing cars. His pace is unreal. His tyre management is unreal. And his passing is uncompromising and spectacular like – he, it just feels like he's getting better and better, right? Yeah, it, it does feel like that. I mean, thankfully, his qualifying isn't quite at that level of everything else, which uh, keeps the races uh, entertaining yeah. entertaining for us. Um, I guess there's two elements to the conversation. One is that he's absolutely the class of the field right now, no doubt about that. He just keeps adding more tricks to his playbook. But at the same time... Of all the uncertainty in the world over the last couple of years, the one thing you can bank on is Triple Eight smashing everyone at Simmons Plains. <laughs> I mean, no, I Brock Feeney showed how good those cars really were with the way he ran and, and the yeah. customer teams, Matt Stone Racing and, and Team 18, and even Premier, to be honest, um, showed a bit yeah. more than, than they normally would. So you combine the package that Triple Eight has with Shane's current level and uh, it did make everyone else look ordinary. It just seems just he's just got that edge under brakes, and obviously when the car's working, it makes such a difference. But and particularly at that circuit, but his passing is what really sort of got chins wagging over the weekend. There was that you know the signature move was the classic door jam at the hairpin, bit of a side draft through the sweeper, and then get it done under brakes into into turn six. It didn't necessarily go down well with everyone. Stefan, what was your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was it was brilliant. It, it really was. Mm. Um, Shane, sure, he, he plays in the margins with his stuff. He pushes it to the absolute limit. But it was it was good hard racing. And and Scotty McLaughlin probably said it best on on Twitter that if you want to stop him doing that, you've got to take the line away. And um, those two yeah. passes that were really the uh, the controversial ones, if you like, were on Will Davo and, and Cam Waters. And both times those guys ran in deep like at the braking threshold of their cars, um, turned it in to maximise the exit. But when you leave the hole, Shane's going to fill it. Um, yeah. And again, that's a mix of, of Shane thinking it through and being very crafty, but also his car was really good under brakes and, and he could turn it as well. So, you know, pe- people say like, oh, why don't, why don't other drivers do that back to Shane? Well, no one came up to him with more speed than he had, so <laughs> they couldn't yeah. even try it. I mean, it's not that these other guys are, are dopes, but they just, yeah, when when the bloke uh, has got the fastest car, it does create more opportunities. But to, to Shane's credit, I mean, we did see a couple of drivers try that sort of thing on each other deeper in the field and ended up having shunts. So for anyone who thinks this is just, just thuggery this type of passing move that he's just bashing into people. It uh, clearly takes a bit more skill. It's a bit more of an art form than that. That That's 100% right. And if you look at, you know, obviously the standout example of that is Mark Winterbottom on David Reynolds on Saturday. And that's, that is 100% what it looked like because you'd seen it done to absolute perfection. And then you see it done in this really clumsy way. And you're like, oh, that's right. When you're bumping doors with people, when the car's on an angle like that, you've got to get it right. 
there's a point where you hit and it's perfect and it's not that far either side of that point where that car's going around or it's getting, you know, if he fences waters, he's getting a penalty. So it is a delicate game and he just plays it so, so well. Um, I think it's worth circling back to something that we actually spoke about on the pod last week about, you know, this our sports insistence at playing down rivalries. Like, you know, we see Cam Waters get jammed in the door. He flips Giz the bird. It's all great theatre. Like, he's clearly he's clearly furious about it. Uh, and then the second the race ends, it all disappears. And I understand Red Mist and all that sort of stuff, but, like, Cam wasn't even asked about it in the podium interviews on TV, which is weird. And when it did come up in the press conference later on, Cam completely played it down. Let's um, let's actually have a listen to that to that press conference audio. Oh, like I don't, I wasn't just smashing them on purpose, but, um, you know, you allowed some rubbing on the exit of the corner and I don't know, they, they braked a bit early and then they went wide. So I, I just shoved it down the inside and got on the throttle early and got alongside them and yeah, I rubbed them, but you know, that's what we want or we're, what we're allowed to do. So I, I drive like that, but um, I'm sure, I don't know, I could have followed them around for 44 laps, but people complain about that too. Uh, well, I, I didn't even comment, I don't think, during the race. I mean, yeah, there was definitely contact a couple of times. I was more concerned about not being able to uh, be as efficient in the braking and, and uh, you know, to be vulnerable like that. So, um, yeah, certainly a bit of contact, but that's uh, that's the way it goes at the moment. I'll just focus on being more competitive and... and uh, We'll press on. That's that's the main thing to worry about for me. I can't even remember what I said, but um, yeah, I didn't break early. I just that's all I had left. Um, so yeah, I'm braking as efficient as I could. You know, Shane's car was was pretty quick, and he could turn under me. Um, I'm all for hard racing and bumping and all that stuff, and yeah, I didn't really think there's much in it. And I expect to be able to give it back to people and not get a penalty either. So um, that's what we want. We're an entertainment business. And uh, we don't want to just follow the leader. So um, I gave him the bird. I don't think he even saw it. So I was a bit disappointed about that. But <laughs> yeah, I'm all for hard racing. Now, Stefan, if we learned anything from the Oscars yesterday, is that a bit of biff goes a pretty long way. Is this just all too tame? Yeah, but it's probably always going to be that way when the drivers have called off there in the press conference and they're essentially just trying not to say anything that will get them roasted on uh, on social media and the like. Yeah. For me, it probably comes back a little bit to how the TV does convey that stuff and you mentioned probably a missed opportunity. Uh, they didn't ask Cam about it straight after the race when he'd just gotten out of the car. But if I could change one thing about the TV um, which which is an exceptionally high standard of broadcast. There's no doubt about that. But it would be improving yeah. the way they used the radio transmissions. Uh, unlike F1, they they tried to play them live, which is which is all well and good. But like in the Waters case, when he was bluing about that during the during the overtake that Shane was making, we couldn't hear it because the commentary is talking over the top because they don't know that it's coming or being played or whatever. Um, so we sort of like we miss that stuff or it's too quiet or we get told by the commentators that someone's blowing up over the radio but we never actually hear yeah. it at all. Um, so it's it's sort of conveying the drama that's actually going on is, is the challenge in those ones. And if the messages are out there, if those radio calls are actually broadcast, then it does make the drivers a little bit more accountable in explaining that afterwards. You can't just brush it off and yeah. say, oh, no, it was nothing. Um, when that's already there. So, like, it's a very different product, but, like, Drive to Survive doesn't use the amount of radio it does for no reason. 
Like it's it's such yeah. a good tool to um, to really depict what's going on in the moment. And I mean, Drive to Survive is sort of a lot of it is emotion without explanation. But the Supercars TV can be the other way around, where they are so good at explaining how that pass happened and what happened and the side draft and all that. But they miss the chance to bring in the emotion. Like, where's the reaction from Tim Edwards or anyone at Tickford straight away about what's yeah. going on? Like, yeah, there should have been someone in that garage straight away asking about what they thought about that. Yeah, movie. for me, that's that's what it misses. And I mean, it's easy to be critical from the cheap seats, but um, yeah, it just feels like that was a bit of a missed opportunity where you don't actually need cam to go and slam Shane afterwards. It's just, um, yeah, just bringing out what was actually going on at the time. I mean, yeah, it coming up in the press conference is pretty much too little too late anyway. It gives us something to write about and it goes up on the YouTube channel or whatever, but the broadcast is where you can really obviously get some traction out of it. That's a really good point I think you make about um, using the radio and about the amount of times, and I actually never really thought about it, the amount of times you do hear Scaifey go, oh, he's blowing up on the radio about this. Well, why aren't we listening to it? Yeah. Like, why can't we hear it? That would be much better than just sort of having this secondhand information relay with not a lot of detail to it. So I think that's, you're right, that's what Formula One does very, very well and it's what uh, our sport could do much, much better. Um, Let's move on to another Van Gisbergen incident and that was the one with Tim Slade in qualifying for race three. Stefan, I was kind of baffled by the discussion about this, like both on the broadcast and even just looking at, social media and the immediate immediate aftermath and that sort of stuff. Like this kind of question mark about like who was in the wrong and and who was in the right. Like and even like like Mark Scaife was talking about Giz being opportunistic and um and then you know when they spoke to Slady he said, Oh, I didn't think he was on a lap or star. He wasn't going to start a lap. So I don't know what I don't know if he thought he was out there like betting in brake pads or something. <laughs> I don't know why he even thought Giz was out there if he wasn't on a lap or starting a lap. Like if someone behind you is on a lap and you turn down on them, that's Surely about as clear as it gets, right? Yeah, I didn't really see why there was so much uh, discussion about it, to be honest. It was just a slam dunk penalty for Slady, unfortunately. Like, there's no doubt he was in a difficult spot. Like, I think t- I think yeah, Tim yeah. had gotten out of his lap after turn four, um, and then you've got to position yeah. yourself for the next lap. Um, but, yeah, Shane was, was on a lap. It was going to be a pole lap, probably. Absolutely. Um, There's absolutely no way he should be expected to get out of it because someone else is preparing themselves for for their lap. So, yeah, that was clearly worthy of a penalty. Um, Yeah, they they didn't do the split qualifying. They they ran them all together in those sessions. Um, It looked like like it was going fine until those final two minutes there. Um, I don't mind that. I've got no problem. I've got no problem with running them all together. I don't like the split qualifying. I think it should be a factor. But in that case, it was just a slam dunk penalty that was being discussed like this great sort of mystery as who's in the wrong and who's in the right. Yeah, for sure. And we're running like, what, 25 cars with what should be pretty elite level drivers and teams managing where every car is on the track and telling the drivers about it on the radio. So it's not like there's, you know, 32 cars with a bunch of amateur privateers out there. Um, We did get a mailbag question about this, asking why Tim and Shane didn't have their fastest times deleted for causing the red flag. And uh, Tim obviously was deemed at fault, and he did get his fastest time deleted. So he got a three-place grid penalty in addition to the fastest time being deleted. So I don't think think anyone could have expected Shane to also have his fastest time removed um, when when he was the victim in that. No, and he was obviously pretty calm about it because, like, he obviously he knew full well he was going to win the race, <laughs> starting from P three. Like, absolutely no, 
No, I I'd, I'd actually, I wonder how far he would have had to have started down to not win the race. I wonder how far down he could have gone and still been like, I'm probably just going to get this done. But um, but yeah, I I I think the, you know, when I talk about this kind of uh, uncertainty over who was at fault, I think the the stewards absolutely nailed it. You know, like the the decision was 100 percent the right one. Um, but even like, you know, sort of running a story saying, well, Slade's been penalised, there was still all this sort of feedback of like, hey, well, Giz just ran into him. It's like, I, I don't really understand where this where this comes from. If you're on the lap, you are, you are on the lap. And like you say, tough one for Slade. He's not, he's not a dope. He knows what he's doing, but he sort of got caught in a bad situation. But yeah, anyway. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars. Unforgettable. Let's stick with the Slady theme, actually. Let's uh, give me your take on, the, on him and Waters and their wild ride through the sweeper on Sunday. Firstly, I love the background to it. I mean, there's a small single car team with a customer Tickford car managed by an ex-Tickford engineer in Brendan Hogan. Um, and they're a long way apart in pit lane these days because Tickford decided to go to four cars and, and the cool drive car got put down the other end of the lane and has a different motor in it. So there's plenty of niggle between those two squads. Don't, uh, don't worry mm-hmm. about that. And Slady uh, did reference that afterwards. He called it out for what it was. But, um, yeah, as far as the incident goes, I mean, Cam is pretty famous, infamous, whatever you want to call it, for leaving only just enough racing room or yeah. just less than yeah. enough. Um, on Saturday, he very, very nearly did the same thing to Shane, like in that uh, yeah. in that exchange uh, that we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, I like the fact that Cam's aggressive. He has a style, but... Um, yeah, unfortunately, when you don't leave any margin, sometimes you take it slightly too far and the consequences um, were big and could have been much, much bigger out of that. So um, it was totally deserving of a, the penalty that it got. Um, I can only imagine the reaction if, if that had been Shane putting someone in the grass. Yeah, it was pretty rude. There's no doubt about that. And like you say, there's a bit of niggle between them. And Slady called it a bonehead move, which was probably uh, probably about – about right. I, I kind of also do like, but, you know, again, going back to our early discussion, in this case, I didn't mind Waters just doing what Waters does and just saying, get stuffed, I don't really care, whatever, racing, like let's just bash doors or whatever. But, yeah, the move was obviously not quite on. There was a point actually where Slady sort of gets into Waters quite a long way over to the right, quite early in the piece, like not far sort of as they start going through the sweeper. So, like, that was they were both giving a little bit, but at the end of the day, you can't just squeeze a bloke. Um, off the uh, off the track and expect to to get away with it, and as you said, it could have been a much bigger shunt. So it kind of um, they were lucky to get away with it to some extent. Just to just let's just go back to the Frosty Reynolds thing. Uh, Fifteen seconds, I think it was that Frosty got. Was that was that really enough for like just flat out spinning a bloke around on the exit of the airpin? Yeah, that seemed a little light, didn't it? I would have thought that that would have been pit lane penalty worthy. Um, when you cause what ended up being a multi-car accident like that, and it's yeah. clear ruined Chaz's day yeah, as well. It's clear what caused it. So. Well, ruined it more. Yeah, that was a strange one. And I guess talking about that uh, earlier contact on the straight with with Cam and and Tim Slade, 
like the, it comes back to that side draft stuff we were talking about before where there's guys trying mm. to get right to someone's quarter panel, draft up alongside them and then get away um, so that they don't get side drafted back. Um, and it just creates all yep. these uh, all these movements. It's slightly more complicated because it's not actually a straight. It's a big uh, big curve there at Simmons Plains. But, mm. um, yeah, there was, there was lots of side-to-side contact we saw with various cars and – it's uh, it's all fun and games until you see what happened with uh, with Tim Slade there on Sunday. Yeah, I reckon there would have been some sheep in that uh, <laughs> in that paddock just off past turn six there that would have been taking shelter for just one moment there. Let's go with just one more Shane Van Gisbergen topic. Um, the whole bragging about trying to go DJR into an early stop on Sunday evening, complete with the sort of sucked in line. What did you make of all that? Was that was that was weird. Yeah, that was an eyebrow raiser for sure. Um, you could tell he instantly regretted saying it and tried to walk it back a bit by saying how much respect he's got for his opposition and things like that. So I'm not sure if he regretted it because it gave anything away. I think he just probably realised it came across as as arrogant and probably a little childish, to be honest, the, the way it came out. Um, it was a sort of chat that probably happens in the garage afterwards, but uh, it slipped yeah. out on TV amid the excitement of... Uh, of the weekend he had. I mean, we all know the rivalry that that exists between Triple Eight and DJR and there's that Ludo factor uh, that really drives it as well. Um, did did Shane really suck them into an early pit stop with the radio talk? Oh, don't know for sure, but either way, the undercut was probably the only way that DJR were going to win that race, right? I mean, it had worked well for Anton think, yeah. in the earlier races. Yeah. Um, both DJR cars pitted before either Triple Eight car in every single race across the weekend, so I think it would have yep. been a surprise if they didn't do it. Yeah, I think so as well. I, I've sort of I've, I've asked a couple of people about that, and the answer seems to be that you know, th- yeah, the undercut was always going to be the best roll of the dice. You know, there's not really any other way to go about it when they're in the situation they're in. So I don't think it really changed the outcome of DJR's call. It's just such a unshamed thing to do. He's normally one that will. So far on the cautious side of what he says, um, generally, particularly on TV, unless he really, you know, when he does come out with those barbs, like, you know, the Davo thing last year and that it tends to be like he's really, he's really thought about it. And that just seemed a little like a bit of a clumsy thing to say, which is not necessarily Shane's style. So... I guess when you get interviewed like 6,000 times over the course of two days, you might slip something out you didn't mention. Got to come up with something different to say. Um, he was uh, just getting bored about being interviewed for winning. What a what a terrible situation to be in. What did you make of uh, DJR's weekend? Yeah, they were they were there, weren't they? But not not quite. Um, mm. They didn't have enough. But it was no surprise at Simmons Plains. So it's just a triple eight track. Um, the surprise was probably that yeah. Will was quicker than than Anton. Um, Anton just yep. couldn't get that last tenth or so out of it in qualifying, which just makes such a big difference around there. But he did a good job oh, yeah. to still get strong points, which, um, you know, we, we debated pre-season whether Anton or Chaz was uh, the bigger threat to Shane in the championship. And it's those weekends that really, uh, really impact that a lot. It's not how high your mm-hmm. highs are. It's um, it's what you do in those weekends where you have buried it in the pack a bit in qualifying. Uh, it was it was good to see Davo up there, but at the same time, it was probably it's a bit hard to watch as well, isn't it? I mean, he couldn't hide how dejected he was after that last race, coming up short of a win again. He's had fifteen podiums yeah. since his last win, which was Bathurst in twenty sixteen. 
I saw a stat that yeah. said like this week will bring up 2,000 days since his last win. Surely he's got to get one this year. What do you reckon? You'd think so. You'd think so. No, I think I think one's going to – it's just got to fall to him at some point. There's going to be somewhere, Darwin or somewhere like that, it's, it, it's going to – it's going to work for him. I think. I think they had a pretty good weekend, to be honest. I mean, we know that's not a track that they traditionally really excel at, um, and you know they they looked they looked pretty good. And like you say, banked valuable points, and they're sort of yeah. There there was that big kind of sense that maybe they could have got a little bit more out of Sydney. Not that that was a disaster, but then this was like I, I would have thought they'd sit back and go, yeah, we kind of we probably maximised pretty good here at a track where you're just always going to struggle to beat you know, at least the lead triple um, eight car. Let's talk about the not lead triple eight car, uh, Brock Feeney. You sort of touched on it uh, a bit earlier in the pod, but um, like first podium in supercars at a track he'd never been to before. Yes, it is a very triple eight friendly track, but he just looks like he belongs, right? Like, I mean, he's, He's exceeding my expectations, particularly in how fast he single lap paces. And that's not to say I didn't think he'd be any good, but just how comfortable he already looks in that front running company. Yes, he still can kind of get shuffled out of position, maybe slightly too easy, but he just looks like a supercars driver and like a really, really good one, right? Yeah. And I mean, exactly. You can sort of look at the fact he's 19 and, and a rookie and all that sort of stuff, but he's just had such a good uh training and such a good upbringing um, that he's he's settled in straight away and he's got the talent to back it up like as you said he can pull a lap out of it out qualifying Shane on Saturday yeah. was was just mega and he's actually got a better qualifying average than Shane after five races better than Anton too that's I amazing know. so um, that's amazing yeah and, and he just gets shuffled back a little bit in the early parts of the races but I don't think I don't think he gets overwhelmed by the pressure of it. I think it's just the inexperience no. of the car positioning that, that just comes with a bit of time. So he certainly made a very, very good start. And it's very hard to gauge how his racecraft battling for the lead is when he's racing Shane. Yeah. You know, like he was in the, fir- in the uh, first race on Sunday because he, there's no way he was going to race him. He was just going to let him go. Um, and that's what he did. Um, so that's it's, – it's, you can't say, okay, well, you know, he was obviously fairly – timid in that battle but of course he was going to be I, I i i've been just really really impressed and and yeah that that weekend really showed i think that um that he is absolutely the, the real deal and i'm sort of excited to see where that goes you know i mean i could see him winning a race this year oh absolutely i could i could definitely see that happening i think that's a thing that that, that may well happen which um you know i know he's in a triple a car but that's still you got to go out there and do it and he looks like someone very capable of doing it. How about David Reynolds? Sort of, you know, we know how inconsistent Groves are. I don't know if I really had him pegged to come out and and kind of do good things at Simmons Plains on the weekend, but Davey looked in pretty good form. Yeah, and um, they they weren't actually super far away last year at Simmons, so to take a third and a fourth from those two Sunday races was was great sugar for them, and, and Lee wasn't too far away either. I mean, I think he was 11th on points for the weekend. So he's uh, he was certainly uh, doing yeah. his bit as well. So they they've started better than I expected, yeah. no doubt about that. Um, and probably you know you would imagine that dropping Couchy into the mix there on a track that Triple Eight dominates probably didn't hurt them. Yeah, for sure. It's funny how you know I think just because Dave is such this sort of eccentric fellow and he's almost like a cartoon character in some ways, you kind of forget that like when the car's working, he's also like an elite racing car driver. 
and can like run around at the front of the field and look perfectly at home following like two triple eight cars around, you know, like parked right underneath them. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's just, it was, it's, it's a nice reminder that, you know, these, you know, that's if they can start making stuff click, he can become a factor when it comes to, uh, to race wins and that sort of stuff. But you just know that they might get to the Grand Prix and lock out the back row because that's just how that team's been for the last couple of years. And I, th- I think everything's tracking in absolutely the right direction, but there's potentially still a bit of work to be doing that week in, week out. Now, there was some, speaking of baffling performances, there was a few over the weekend as well, Stefan. I mean, Walkinshaw and Andretti United and Chaz Mostert in particular just really really struggled. I mean, we talked last week about how this track might really suit Chaz. You know, he won a race there last year, but he went from leading the championship to being like 145 points behind Giz. Like, what do you think? Yeah, well, we spoke about it after SMP that they'd passed the first test by, you know, going well at a flowing track with open radius corners, which had traditionally been their weakness. But the question still was, could they then turn up to one of their traditionally strong tracks and still be still be strong. And there were a few things that went against them for sure, like that crash on Saturday. And and there were a couple of little positives like driving through to fourth in race two, but they just didn't have the pace. They just, they didn't miss it by a small amount either. Like when you don't qualify in the top 10 for any of the races, you've missed it mm-hmm. by a lot. So the two-day meeting probably didn't help them that if you don't roll out well, you're really up against it. But yeah, it was, it was disappointing. I think they will bounce back pretty strongly at Albert Park, but you know it certainly let some air out of the WAU balloon that had uh, sort of grown over the last. Uh, yeah, few months. I think Albert Park's going to be a very different proposition. I, I, I feel that they're, you know, we've always talked about Walkinshaw cars being sort of you know stop, turn, drive cars. You know, maybe we're seeing the fact that they do work better on that flowing style of circuit. If we look at Bathurst, if we look at Sydney Motorsport Park, and if we look at the fact that maybe it didn't quite work that well on the weekend, I think there might be a change in philosophy there in terms of the the way those cars drive. And I think um, I think we could see them work a lot better at uh, Albert Park. And Chaz traditionally goes pretty well there as well. Obviously, it's a whole new Albert Park circuit, so. Um, there could be some wild cards there, but the fact that it's still wide, it's still fast, it's actually faster. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they bounce back, but I'm fairly confident they will. But those weekends are just so damaging when you're trying to win a championship, which is exactly what they have to be trying to do this year. What about Erebus Motorsport? Like, apart from Brody in race one, they just had no pace. And I mean, it's I know it's a, such an obvious thing to say, but, you know, Will Brown talked about not being able to get the car turned into the hairpin. And if you can't do that, you're just in a world of hurt around that joint, aren't you? Yeah, this was probably the strangest one of all, to be honest. Um, how Brody could be top four on Saturday and then nowhere on Sunday was a bit baffling and it probably needs a bit more more digging. I'm not sure if they really understand it either. Um, so, yeah, I'm at a loss with that one, but it's, it's kind of one of these things that the form book was so built over the fact that, you know, five of the last six rounds were all at Sydney Motorsport Park that we'd had across these last... Um, last uh, six months or whatever. So, yeah, we went went to a totally different type of track and they just weren't there. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Stefan, I just wanted to get your thoughts on some changes to the Supercars Super Licence system. Now, there's been a tweak to the requirements to, at the very least, the amount of Super 2 racing that you need to automatically qualify for 
a super license. Um, you used to have to uh, do a lot of super two. You couldn't really come in without having done super two. Now, I've always been dubious about the super license system. I think there was an element of cynicism in its initial introduction to push people towards certain categories. That picture has changed over the years, but basically insisting that drivers have to come through Super 2 was, in my opinion, uh, never the right thing to do, and it's probably come more from supercars than Motorsport Australia. Um, I, I think this is a step in the right direction. Uh, another little change is that teams now need to apply for dispensations for super licences, which might clear up some of the more speculative inquiries and make it a bit clearer about what the intention is for teams to put someone in a car. Um, I just still believe, Stefan, that like we could just not have the super license system at all. It should only ever be about safety and not tearing up gear and costing teams money. And I don't believe that's the purpose it has served at any point. I think all it's been doing is narrowing pathways, which is the complete opposite of what we want to happen. Um, and I think it's just become a bit of a political football about ranking categories and it just categories are then arguing about who should have this and what should this be or whatever. I don't see why we can't just have a more robust version of the observed license test system that Motorsport Australia already uses for its lower level licenses. Like if a team wants to pull a kid out of Formula Ford or Aussie racing cars or 86s or whatever and put it in their car for Bathurst, well, that's that you know, you take them to Winton or QR or wherever, and someone qualified to judge watches them drive the car and make sure they aren't missing gears and locking brakes and spraying and that they can lap at what is a you know competitive lap time fairly comfortably, and then say, Right, yeah, I can we can tick these guys off. This guy can jump in the car and go to the Bathurst 1000 and drive it. To me, that would be a much better system, and we would cut out a level of admin, we would cut out a level of cost for competitors and we would cut out this this constant bickering over who has what and who what should have what and whatever and we would just open the pathways back up, which is exactly what we should be trying to do. Am I being too harsh here, Stefan? No, I don't think it's too harsh. I mean, they blew this whole thing up themselves the moment they put it out with the situation of Alex Rulo getting that yeah. dispensation. Like straight up, that was the thing was only like yeah. a month old. So... It's just a very, very difficult thing to do in motorsport, this, this system, and it becomes political yeah. instantly. It's And it's hard enough, as you were sort of saying, to, for young drivers to put deals together to move through these categories without putting an extra layer of red tape in the way. But I also see that it might be hard to abolish it now to put the toothpaste back in the tube and, and try to walk it backwards because it's a bad look if they get rid of it and then someone does have a big shunt that wouldn't have been there if not if the old system was in place. So, yeah, I don't have the solution, to be honest. I think this is just going to be a stumbling, awkward beast. Um, yeah, forever. I don't think they will ever get rid of it, but I just think that, you know, if that scenario you just mentioned happened, it wouldn't necessarily be because the system works because I don't think the system works at all and I think you can have other systems in place. It's, like, I, like I say, the point, my point is it should be about safety, and, and not wrecking gear. And I don't believe that is actually the purpose that it serves. It can be argued that it does, but I just don't think it does. 
All right, let's take a look around the world. Max Verstappen opened his 2022 account with victory in the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. He and Charles Leclerc had a great little stoush late in the race. Carlos Sainz was third, while early leader Sergio Perez had his race undone by a poorly timed stop before a virtual safety car. Daniel Ricciardo's race came to an early end due to a mechanical failure. And in NASCAR... There was another thrilling finish. They do know how to finish a race, these blokes. I'll give them that. Uh, Ross Chastain fired AJ Almendinger into Alex Bowman to take victory at Cota. There is just nothing more fun than watching a NASCAR sort of wallow around on a uh, on a road course. Let's go back to the Grand Prix, Steph, and what was uh, your take of what went down in, in Saudi Arabia? It was certainly an exciting fight for the race win. It's really shaping into a Verstappen-Leclerc championship fight, but... I've got to say that watching two blokes uh, slowing up and locking wheels trying to be behind <laughs> each other at the DRS line is an absolute joke. It's it's more befitting a Mario Kart than a than a Formula One level uh, battle. I mean, we saw it last year there in, in Jeddah and to a lesser extent in their battle in Bahrain. But um, yeah, I think when it's a relatively slow speed corner leading onto the straight, you just put the DRS line yeah. on the exit, right? That just solves, solves that. Yeah. Um, but I guess it, it all seems a bit trivial considering what was actually going on off track there over the weekend. Um, I don't know how far we need to go into the merits of racing in Saudi Arabia, but I feel sorry for everyone that was there on the weekend that felt uneasy yeah. about it. Uh, I think Lewis Hamilton's comments back in 2020 about cash is king were probably ringing truer than ever there over the weekend. F1 needs to have a serious look about what it's going to do about this yep, in the future. absolutely. No, I had a note right here saying it just says, I'm not sure there should be a Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. And, you know, I just think that for a, a whole bunch of reasons, not least when, you know, oil refineries 10 kilometres or 10 miles from the track are being missiled during the race weekend, um, it would have been pretty horrible to be on the ground. And I think there definitely needs to be some big discussions about going going back there, not just for that, but for a number of other human rights reasons and all sorts of stuff. You know, it's I think it's great that the sport, I think, you know, I, I, I think that the sport needs to take a stand on certain things, not going to Russia, 100% the right decision, but uh, we need to delve a little bit beyond just what the latest thing is and, and look at some other issues out there. But um, on the motor racing side, good race and it just kind of sets things up now that um you know we go to albert park not really knowing who's going to win you know there's a pecking order of some sort but there are some you know you really don't know which way it's going to go between ferrari and 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 red bull at the moment they tend the cars tend to make their speed in fairly different ways obviously there was some different downforce levels going on for for leclerc and for max uh, on the weekend, but it's certainly interesting when you see cars making their speed in very different ways and able to follow and able to race. So it was pretty fascinating and I'm getting pretty excited about Albert Park. Yeah, and the teammates weren't that far away either. Like Carlos is not quite got what Charles has at the moment, but he's, he's not far and Checo to pull out that lap for pole. Um, yeah, it was very impressive and it was a shame he didn't get the opportunity to play that race out the way he should have because of the, uh, the safety car situation. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting amongst those four. And then there's just this this looming Mercedes like that. They were a long way off again, obviously, on the weekend, but you just never know whether they're going to turn up one week and they've they've clicked something and it's, uh, it's right there. So it is uh, definitely a tasty dish heading to Melbourne. I think the second they can set that car up the way they want to set it up, it's going to go real fast and things are going to get really interesting. So 
it's a fun season. It's a fun season. All right, let's get into the Castrol mailbag. We've got another one from David, my friend David Steinveder this week. He's a good question asker, this bloke. He's got a couple in now. Um, he wants to know if there could be any interesting driver movements for the 2023 supercars season. What do you reckon, Stefan? Who could be on the move? What could change during this season or over the off-season for 2023? Yeah, that is a good question because this hasn't really been talked about too much and I'll be interested in your take on it because you're the newsman here. But um, the mm. one thing that has been uh, sort of flagged pretty publicly was actually Barry Ryan uh, that we spoke about a few weeks ago talking about the fact that... Uh, <laughs> Davo's on the air. You know, he's, yeah, yeah, being afraid of losing one of his two drivers uh, to DJR if uh, they do decide to replace Will Davison. Obviously, Will made a... Pretty uh, has made a pretty good start to the year, and uh, if he keeps going like he did in Tassie, he might well be safe. But there's a there's a question around all that. I guess we pretty well know that Matt Payne is going up to the main series, um, and you would think that'd yeah. be to replace Lee Holdsworth. Um, interested to see if Mark Winterbottom goes around again because he is out of contract. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, whenever it looks like it's going to be relatively stable, the silly season always throws up. Uh, some surprises. What What do you reckon? Yeah. Well, look. Last yeah, last year's silly season couldn't have been much uh, much wilder, and that kind of came out of nowhere to some to some extent. Yeah. Look, I think the Davo one is definitely interesting, but obviously, you know, if he keeps driving like he drove on the weekend, it's going to be pretty hard to make a case to to not want to have him in the car. Uh, yeah, Matty Panic Groves for sure. I think that the other or well, the Winterbottom one's interesting because you know he when he signed his deal that ran into this year. He made kind of a big deal about the fact that he wanted to see in the Gen 3 era. Um, and that's why it kind of slipped my mind that he was out of contract this year because obviously we had so much change in terms of the introduction of Gen 3 and, and it was easier to go, oh, hang on a minute. No, it's actually, yeah, no, it was this. We were meant to be racing Gen 3 cars like right now. We're actually meant to be racing in 2021 at some point, I think. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I think he would want to go again just to have that opportunity, but there's obviously commercial realities and stuff, so I guess it comes down to, to you know, signing Irwin on again and, and, and going again. Um, the other sort of question mark is, you know, are we going to see another TRC come into play and another another car on the grid to get back to that even number of cars? We know that, that, that Tim Blanchard feels pretty hard done by by the fact he's sort of out on his own. This year, uh, I know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, Blanchard Racing Team expanding. Um, I th- believe that's still something they would be interested in doing. So, you know, we could see an extra seat on the grid. So who who ends up in, in that car? So, um, yeah, I think there, there will be some stuff to play out for sure. You know, what does year two of Premier Racing look like? What's their sort of longer term? ambitions uh in terms of moving that team forward um so you know there, there's there is there, there will be some interesting stuff to play out. and there's always the uh the ultimate wild card in peter Addison and boost and what those guys end up doing yeah. can uh, always affect a couple of seats as well absolutely well i mean that the whole plan this erebus plan is that they want to be a standalone erebus customer team next year that was what was announced as part of this thing, you know. But they need to get as part of their deal. But they need to get, they need to get the charters to be able to uh, to do it, which seems to be proving a bit harder than uh, than Pete Adderton would uh, would like. All 
All right, let's get into our Castrol Stars of the Week. And I did just mention them, but this week I'm going to hand my little golden star out to Premier Racing. Um, now, I know the AAA customer effect helps in Tassie, um, but we saw some decent results from the newest team on the Supercars grid. Chris Pither was 13th in the first race on Sunday. There was a 16th for Gary, another 16th for Chris as well. When when Peter Zibras bought the team, um, he said to me, you know, all we want to do is not embarrass ourselves at the start. You know, we just need to get through this year. And they are definitely not embarrassing themselves. You know, they look like a uh, they look like a race team and, and it's good to see them getting some results. Stefan, who's your star of the week? Well, we've both gone for the Triple Eight customer route because um, I'm going with Matt Stone. Um, you know, it was great to see that team show some pace and score some results on the weekend. They've done a good job of turning up with two well-presented cars this year. And there's something just right about seeing Todd Hazelwood in that team, to be honest. Um, but not only yeah. did they turn out some reasonably fast cars, but they did a great job to repair Jack LeBrock's car in time for the second race on Sunday after its accident in the earlier race. And uh, in particular, like seeing Larco do an update about the progress on uh, on TV and having Matt Stone in the background actually working on the car, giving the thumbs up, she'll be right, we'll get it, we'll get it on the grid. Feel like that kind of summed up uh, what a relatively small team that is when the team principal's there on the tools. So, uh, yeah, he's my uh, Castrol star of the week. What did you think about Larko like live reporting the recovery of the car from the sand trap? Yeah, that was cool to put him on the track. Um, yeah, I like that. It was just uh, may as well do something interesting in the red flag. So he yeah. was uh, he was there on the scene. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticket Tech. Supercars. Unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.